So this morning we will be looking at the book of 1 Corinthians. We have been on a long series that will continue for a while still, in which we're looking at New Testament books. Sometimes we take one, sometimes we take a couple if they're short and similar. And the whole goal of this, as you have come to know, is to give a framework, sort of an overarching idea to understand what's happening in that book or that letter. Uh, we certainly don't have time in, in one Sunday to get into all the issues that are present in these, and especially today as we talk, to, I talk about 1 Corinthians. It's a massive book with lots of stuff going on in it. Um, so we're going to take just a couple topics. But the point is that you get a general understanding of what the author is trying to, to accomplish, trying to teach his reader and us, so that as you go back and you read them and you get into the verse-by-verse -verse study or you're you know, reading it as part of your devotion or a Bible study or, or however, you have that overarching theme or idea to keep in the back of your head to help you understand and interpret uh, what is being said. Um, so today, uh, we're going to talk about two primary issues that are coming out of Corinthians. And we're going to use as our primary verse this from 1 Corinthians chapter 10 as the 23rd and 24th to frame that conversation. And then it says, all things are lawful, but not all things are beneficial. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Do not seek your own advantage, but that of the other. Right off the gate, what do you recognize or do you, what do you notice about this scripture? There's something, there's a textual clue here. See some mouths moving. <laughs> there, there's something, yeah, yeah, particularly about the, the all things are lawful. Yeah, what, what, what sticks out to you about that? Okay, so Ricky's taking that in, in here in that there's an order, there's a, a law and, and sort of order and a meaning behind everything. The textual clue is that, that it's in quotes. Okay, and it, we have a tendency to come to this text, and, and particularly 1 Corinthians. And the reason I point this out is this happens a number of times in this letter. Paul quotes something, and we're going to talk about what this is as we go forward this morning. But he's quoting something in order to draw a contrast and to basically argue against it. So what Ricky says is absolutely true. There is a law and there's an order, and that's part of his point. Um, but this is a slogan, and we're going to get into it in a minute, uh, that he's using in order to echo what's going on in the lives and the community of Corinth, the Corinthian church. Um, to then set up a, a dichotomy or a juxtaposition against what he and, and the church and Jesus have said. And so just pay attention as you read through 1 Corinthians when things are quoted. Um, it, it, oftentimes we just read through that, breeze through that, and we think Paul's saying all things are lawful. And we're going to get into why exactly Paul's definitely not saying all things are lawful today. Keep in your mind, those of you who have been with us uh, through our process, especially over the last couple of months, that Paul cares, cares very much and is at the, at the forefront of his mind and his teaching is this concept of righteousness. And we spent now two or three weeks talking about that. So those of you who have been with us, what is, what is righteousness in the biblical sense? Being in right relationship, right? So we have a sort of a modern and particularly Protestant understanding of righteousness that is to be righteous is to do things right, to, to not sin, to check off all the right boxes and to avoid the wrong things. And if you adhere to a moral code, then you're righteous. And we've talked at length about the fact that what it means to be righteous is in some ways that, but that is all put into the, the context of relationship. And so to be righteous is to have fulfilled your obligations to other people and to God, right? And, and when the Old Testament writers, the psalmists, 
for example, call upon God's righteousness as something which would compel him to help them in their time of need, what they mean is not that God is sinless. What they mean is God is faithful to his, the relationship that he's established with them, and they're asking God to be faithful to that relationship and then come to their aid. And so righteousness has to do with relationships, always. It's not some objective or abstract standard that's you and this list of things that you have to do. It's always you and somebody else or God or a community. Um, and so while that doesn't get used in the text very much within Corinthians, it's definitely right under the surface and the, the purpose or the grid with which Paul's writing. And then the other thing we have to keep in mind is what we've talked about two and three weeks ago uh, was this concept of apocalyptic worldview. For those of you who have been with us, what is, what is the apocalypse or what is an apocalypse? So if you listen to Hollywood, it's the end of the world, right? It's this cataclysmic meteor happening and just everything is being destroyed. But in the, in the biblical text, the word in that context means it's a, it's a revealing, right? The, the, the text, the last book of our Bible, Revelation, is literally apocalypse in the Greek. It's the, the apocalypse of John. And apocalypse is an unveiling or a revealing. And so it's not this Hollywood end of the world cataclysm. It is the, the veil of the, of the world being, <clears throat> excuse me, being pulled back and we are being shown the true reality of the world. And that's what has happened in the book of Revelation. It's what James argues for in his letter and Paul very much in the, the two letters to the Thessalonians is framing all of his instructions within this idea that there is a coming end and we have to look forward to the end when Jesus will come and make it all right. And knowing that that will happen allows us to live with a certain motivation, with a mindset and a framework that allows us to do things that we, we just other, otherwise probably wouldn't be able to do. Um, and at the end, it is knowing that God will make everything right allows us, in essence, to suffer and to do things that we don't want to do because we know in the end it's going to be okay. That's the quick and the dirty of it. But both of those ideas play heavy in this letter. Um, let's talk just a minute about Corinth itself. Corinth is a city. Here's a map. It sits right here towards the middle. Um, and this is obviously the Mediterranean Sea. Israel is over here. There's Jerusalem. Uh, and so this is one of the cities that among, you know, Ephesus, Athens, um, ultimately Rome, uh, Paul will write to and end up. In fact, that's where he dies. Corinth is right sort of in the middle. And if we kind of zoom in, we see it right here. And it is right here on this little bit of land that connects the main body of Europe to the peninsula uh, of Greece. And this became, Corinth became a profound place, especially in the, the Greco-Roman era, or era. Um, in 146 BC, it was utterly destroyed by Rome as they conquered the area. And then in about 40 BC, they rebuilt it, Rome rebuilt, rebuilt it. So by the time Paul comes around, about 100 years after that, they have uh, been largely Romanized. So all the architecture is Rome, the religion, the culture, everything is very much Roman. Um, and there is a blending of Roman and Greek, of course, in the area. Uh, but this would lean more towards Rome. For those of you who know about that, it matters. Um, but the other thing that's unique about this particular spot is not only is it uh, the place that you, through which you had to pass to get to the rest of this land area, but a lot of times when people were shipping, so these other cities, as you would... Uh, ship goods or whatever you are sending over to the main body, over to Rome, for example, or Italy, um, you would rather than sailing all the way around south and back up, you'd actually come to this port and they would, today, in about, I think it was 1923, they, they built a canal so boats could get through there. 
but at this time there's not. They would actually take the boats up on rollers and roll them six miles and then drop them back in the water over here so you can continue. Which sounds like a lot of work, but it's, apparently it was less work than having to sail all the way around Greece. And so what happened in Corinth was it became this, this travel hub. It was said that all roads led to Rome, but all roads led through Corinth. And as a result, it became a wealthy place. Um, it became a place where lots of travelers went, lots of immigrants would go. It was transient in nature, so people would be obviously traveling through it. And its economy boomed because all of, as all the travelers went through, they were buying things. So things such as what Paul did, he made tents. This was a place where you could go and be a tent maker and people would be having their tents repaired or, because remember, they're traveling on foot and at night they have to set something up to live in, so they're carrying tents. So uh, it became a place where artisans such as that could come and make a good living. Um, it also became a place of great learning. And one historian has said that Corinth was a prosperous, cosmopolitan, and religiously pluralistic city accustomed to visits by impressive traveling public speakers and obsessed with status, self-promotion, self and personal rights. And in this time and place in Rome, in the whole Roman Empire, there was this uh, heavy emphasis on shame and honor within culture. And so we certainly have things in our lives that we do that sort of are embarrassing and we would say we would be shameful of. But in this time and place, that is taken to the hundredth degree, okay? And so everything you do there's a scale of shame and honor. And so you're either adding shame or honor to you and your family. So if you go out in the public, and as you may know, like there are public squares in which people would get up talk and talk. Paul would do this often as he goes to preach. And there, were, there would be debates that would go on. And so if you entered into one of those debates publicly, you were putting it on the line. And if you lost that debate, that was a shameful thing. And so the people, particularly of Corinth, who were seeing this happen a lot, became accustomed to this way of life and way of interacting. And everything that happened became this sort of personality uh, and shame, honor sort of competition. And so as one speaker came and uh, talked, excuse me, talked, you would evaluate their rhetoric and their skill in speaking and their arguments and over and against the, this other speaker and whoever wins is, is you know, more honored. They're elevated in the, in the eyes of the public and if you lost, you, well, you were shamed, and you would live with that shame, having failed to live up to the task until you could come back and prove yourself again. And so there's this constant proving ground and battle and jockeying that's going on in this community. And it's not certainly just argumentation, that's the example we're using, but everything. Uh, one, one of the things that made the early church look down upon so much is they, they didn't participate in the religious uh, rites and rituals that permeated Romans. Roman culture. So as a Christian, you were not going to go and participate in a game in which you had to hail and pledge allegiance to the emperor or to the, the local gods. And so they became shamed and looked down upon for not being good citizens. And that was heavy on their hearts, and that comes up in a number of letters. Um, but this, thing, this idea is at play, and heavily so, in Corinth. As far as Paul's concerned, his history, he shows up, I mentioned, about 100 years after Corinth is built as a Roman city, about 50 AD, he shows up in Corinth. He travels to Corinth, and he spends about 18 months there. And he initially goes in, as he always does, and starts preaching in the synagogues. Pretty quickly, within a matter of weeks, he's run out of there for what he's saying. Um, and he takes with him a, probably a handful of Jews that uh, decided to believe a number of what they call God-fearers, who were pagans who had not yet converted to Judaism, but were uh, sort of 
buying into the message and the story of God and Israel, and then a number of just pagans who, who had nothing to do with God. And he, would, he went and he established a number of different house churches. And we've talked before about Paul's churches are not, you know, we think of a, a church, especially a cosmopolitan church, and we're talking hundreds and thousands of people in our, in our area. Like you go into Columbus into a megachurch, or you go, I grew up in Atlanta, and there's some megachurches down there that they have multiple services, and every service has 13,000 people in it. Huge churches. But what Paul is starting is this. What you, look, what you look around and see today, the 30 people that are in here, give or take, that's what Paul's doing. He has churches of 20 and 30 people. The biggest one we know of that existed uh, anywhere was at the max about 70 people. 60 or 70 people could fit into the room that they were meeting. So these are small churches, and he has a number of them spread around Corinth. Um, but because of the culture that was going on in Corinth and, and the things that were playing in the background uh, and, and the geography, there were a number of other apostles that would come through. And Paul, in his letters, and particularly in Corinthians, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, mentions that there's another guy named Apollos who came through. He was another apostle, um, a missionary. And we have reason to believe that Peter himself, Simon Peter, the, sort of the head disciple, had come through. And he, they would have talked to the churches and edified them and tried to train them. And typically, that's a great thing for a church, that you have multiple apostles coming through and teaching, and everything sort of jives together and gets, you get multiple perspectives and ways of teaching, and we can learn from that. But in this culture, and this, when this honor and shame thing's going on, what happens is it sets up factions within the church. Because in this world, you pick one. And so they pit Apollos against Paul against Peter, and all of a sudden you have these rival churches and factions within the Corinthian church as a whole that are now arguing with each other about who's right. And so Paul, after 18 months, had left, and he gets word from a number of different sources. Timothy gives a report. He gets a letter, we're told, from Chloe's people. Chloe is likely one of the church leaders. She probably owned the house in which they met, and so she was the leader of that church. And then we're told there's some other Christians that come, come physically from Corinth to deliver a report, and things are not good. Things get sideways real quick in Corinth because of all of the the turmoil and the cultural things that are going on and being misinterpreted. Um, and so Paul writes a first letter, and we don't have that letter. He references it in 1 Corinthians. That's how we know it exists. And he writes to them about uh, sexual ethic and some immorality that's going on. And we don't know what the context of that is. Maybe someday we'll discover it and find, but chances are it's lost to history. Um, but we know it's about that. It's probably relatively short because, as he tells us, that's what it's about. The letter we know as 1 Corinthians is a much longer letter. It's about it's 16 chapters, and it talks about a lot of stuff. And what has happened is Chloe's people have written, uh, this other group has written, and Timothy has come with reports about a whole host of questions and problems that have arisen. Today we're going to talk about two of those. Um, but real quick, I want to run through, give you an idea of what this letter is about. He's responding. He talks about marriage and celibacy, food that are sacrificed for idols. That's one of the issues we're going to talk about today. Spiritual gifts. So there's talking about speaking in tongues and prophecy and all sorts of stuff in, in Corinthians. He addresses uh, the need for collecting funds for the Jerusalem church. If you remember, Jerusalem church is the mother church that, that is existing at this time in utter turmoil and chaos in Jerusalem. And it's poor people almost exclusively. And so one of Paul's tasks as he's planning churches is also collecting funds and teaching the Gentiles that they are part of the family and then in turn supporting the Jews, which 
then to the Jewish Christians that are in Jerusalem says, hey, these Jewish or these Gentile Christians are part of us. Like, so part of, part of collecting a, a collection or funds is for Paul unifying the church. So he talks about that. He does address specifically Apollo and his coming back at some point. He talks about all the factions that we mentioned have cropped up. He talks about incest, lawsuits. He talks about women in worship. He talks about the general order and disorder that's present in their worship. Uh, there are those of them that are denying the resurrection, and that, of course, for Paul is a massive problem, so he talks about that. He talks about how to evaluate and listen to these traveling preachers and speakers that they hear come through over and over again. Um, he talks about the fact that they're obsessed with status and they need to let go of that. Uh, and he addresses their, their need for self-promotion and this idea of personal rights. So all of that is crammed into this, this letter. And given his topics, it's a very short letter. Each of these things gets a little bit of a treatment. Um, but it's a, it's a massive letter in terms of what we can learn from it, what we can piece out about the Corinthian church and the early church and what was going on in the culture. So it's, it's, it's a very important letter. But like I said, there's absolutely no way we can talk about all this stuff today. Um, but as Paul goes through and he addresses all of these things, he, he uses as one of his sort of levers this idea of church unity. And I've talked before about how for Paul, one of the chief witnesses that the church has to the world is its unity and love for one another. And we know historically that that was true, that as the church loved them, each other and loved those outside of it, the poor, the widows, in cases when there were plagues that would break out, they would literally go into the streets and take the people that had been tossed out of their own homes and take them into theirs and care for them. It was their love and unity, not only for the church itself, but those outside of it, that became a compelling witness to the world that said, hey, these, these people are different. There's something amazing about them, and I want to be part of that. And for Paul, above, probably above all else, that is, that is the thing that the church has to offer the world. Um, and that should be important, and it definitely plays into his arguments in Corinthians. Um, and we need to keep in mind, of course, going along with that, this idea of righteousness that we've talked about, uh, and this idea of apocalypse and sort of keeping in, in our, our brain, our, our, our framework as... God is ultimately going to be putting things right. And so that has an impact and it means something for the way we work, way we work and play and, and live in our world. Um, there are, as I said, many lessons that could be taken from 1 Corinthians. Today's main points, there, there are two of them that we're going to draw out today. The first is there are, in fact, things in this world which you can't do. Which to us, we kind of nod our heads and say, well, of course, there, there are behaviors that are off limits. For this culture, I'm going to talk about why, that wasn't necessarily the case. So it's, a, it's actually a big point that he's got to make. And then the other one, the other side of that is there are actually lots of things that as Christians we get to do that as Jews they would have never been allowed to do. For example, we can eat pork. They could have never done that. But there are lots of other Judaic laws that get sort of eclipsed by the truth of Jesus. And so there's this newfound freedom within the church. Um, and you put that together with their propensity for rights and their, their need and want to be good and do, do what they want to do. And you've got a potential problem. Um, and so he, the second point, the, the other side of the coin is, yes, you're, you're allowed to do lots of things, but you probably shouldn't. And we're going to talk about that, and particularly within the context of the food that had been offered to idols. So we're going to, we're going to jump into chapter 5, and we're not going to read a lot of it today. You can go home and you can, I encourage you to read it, of course. Um, we're just going to talk, talk through it. Um, but as he opens in chapter 5, one of the things that he is beside himself about and can't imagine and believe that has happened is there's, there's apparently a man within the church at Corinth who has taken it upon himself to wed, potentially marry, but has taken his father's wife. 
So probably not his biological mother, but his stepmother. Um, and they are now acting inappropriately. We'll say that. We have kids in the room. <laughs> um, and so that, of course, we kind of look at that and be like, oh, that's terrible. And his argument is, you know, even the pagans would look at that and say, that's terrible. The big problem is not, I mean, of course, that action is a terrible thing, and he cares much about that, but the bigger problem is the church doesn't care. And he's beside himself about the fact that they're just going on as if everything's fine, and that's not a problem, and anybody can do whatever they want to. And so he spends the entire section that we know is chapter 5 talking about this issue um, and, and the church's response. We need to talk a little bit about why in the world the church would have no response or not care. And it has everything to do with the philosophy and the, the worldview that existed at that time in Corinth, in Athens, and a number of the other cities in which church, or Paul had planted churches. There was a philosophy known as Stoicism. And we have that, we've taken our word Stoic from that. Do you, what does it mean to be Stoic? Jamie? Sort of flat. You have no emotion, unaffected by anything, right? Um, and so if someone is stoic in the face of trial, they just are cool, calm, collected. But it comes from the philosophy of Stoicism. And Stoics were pantheists. And that word pan means everything, theist means God. And so Stoics, pantheists, believe that God is not just in everything, but God is everything, right? So the music stand is God, the pew you sit in is God, your mask is God, my paper's God, everything is God. So in essence, everything is divine. And they used a number of words, which you're going to recognize, uh, to talk about this. And one of the ways they talked about it was that there was a logos that indwelled everything. Well, that sounds very much like First John, right? In the beginning was the word. Remember that passage from First John? That, that word in Greek is logos. It's the same exact word. And a, and a Stoic... Stoic meant something different by that because they, for them, this logos, this organizing principle, this divine nature was a physical, tangible thing that made up everything. And that's, that's different from, obviously, the New Testament Pauline uh, church Christian message of a spirit God indwelling us. Um, but they used that language. And the purpose of a Stoic life, the purpose of life according to, a, to Stoicism was to become wise and enlightened to that nature and realize that everything is God, that everything around you is, is in essence God. And that sets up this reality, or this, let's, let's just ask the question, if everything is God, can there be such thing as evil? No. Right? If everything is God... If every person is God, if every brick and piece of sand and dirt and bird, if it's all God, whatever happens is of God. And so everything's okay. And this is why they were stoic. Because if your child died, that's God. It was good, right? If someone gets stabbed in the marketplace, that's not evil, that was God. And so because they think everything is God, they, they worry about nothing. They have no emotional connection or reaction to anything. And to be wise, according to a Stoic, is to come to this realization that everything is okay and everything is as it should be. Whether you feel emotional about it or not is irrelevant. It's all God and just sort of be. All right? Um, and so the point was to become this enlightened 
being, and you don't get worked up about anything. And there was one Stoic philosopher, his name was Seneca, and he said this, and this is going to sound really familiar. He says, God is near you. He is with you. He is within you. The Holy Spirit indwells within us, one who marks our goods, good and our bad deeds, and is our guardian. Well, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Okay, and what he means by that is something that's fundamentally different than what we mean as Christians, but it's the same language, right? You see that? And so now put yourself in the mind and, and the body and the place of a Corinthian, who this is their worldview. And then you get Paul coming in talking about a logos and a spirit and God is all around us, right? And you go, I know that story. And what happens and what Paul is so concerned about, and he's concerned in a number of his other letters, is the philosophy and the culture of the day gets introduced and invades the church and the church's message very easily. And the Corinthian church has gone way off track because they don't fundamentally understand the difference between the message that Paul and Apollos and Peter have given them and the one that Seneca and Zeno and the other Greek philosophers have given them. To them, it sounds the same, and they're not yet aware of the fundamental shift that they have to make. All things are lawful. It's in quotes because this was the slogan of the Stoic. Right? How could anything be unlawful if everything is God? Nothing can be evil. And so Paul quotes the Stoic slogan as he aims to refute it. And he says to the church, not only is this detestable, what this man has done, but I am completely fed up with you all. <laughs> Can't imagine that you don't care. You should have kicked this guy out. You should be mourning for the fact that one, it happened. Two, you've lost a brother, that he's behaving so horribly. Not all things are lawful. There are things that you can't do. And I said, you know, for us, that sounds kind of like, well, yeah, my, my mom taught me that, right? My grandma used to whoop me because I did something wrong. Like, I know that, right? I learned that, but they don't. For them, as a stoic, whatever happens is, you know, whatever happens is happens. And that's just the, the reality of the world. And it also means I can do whatever I want to because whatever I do is divine. I'm divine. I can do whatever I want to. And so it was literally just a buffet of a world where you can just go and eat and do and what, have whatever you want. And so he's trying to make them understand that, yes, there is this thing called Christian freedom. Paul got in a lot of trouble in a lot of places preaching Christian freedom because people hear it and they thought he was teaching this, that you could just do whatever you want to. In fact, the letter of Romans is likely written to the Romans ahead of Paul's visit. We'll talk about this when we get to Romans. In, in large measure, to correct this misunderstanding that they had about his message and this, this libertine philosophy that you can just do whatever you want to, he got his message, his message was twisted all over the place and he was battling it time and time again. And certainly here, you've misunderstood me. What I mean by Christian freedom is not you get to do whatever you want to. There are things that are absolutely off limits. And so, like I said, I think that sounds pretty normal for us. Um, and there's, this is not the time and place to go into the litany of lists of things that we probably shouldn't be doing. But we are aware, of course, that there are things we shouldn't do. The other issue we're going to talk about today is the one of e eating meat. And one of the things that gets written to him is this question about whether or not it is lawful or morally right for a Christian, a member of the church, to be eating meat that had been sacrificed in the temple to the pagan idols. 
right? Uh, why is this even a question? Why don't they just go out and get meat that wasn't sacrificed, right? That would be an easy answer. And the reason is because that's expensive. Meat was hard to come by and it was pricey. And you recall that the majority of the church, although in Corinth there were wealthy members, of course, that he addresses at certain points, but by and large, the, the church is made up of, of peasants, working poor, they're not people that have means. And so if there's going to be meat that they can eat, it's the meat that's coming from the temples because every day around the clock in multiple temples, meat has been sacrificed. And so these temples have this overabundance of meat. And so they come out into the marketplace and they sell this meat that's been sacrificed. And if there's anything that these, these churches can, can purchase and afford, it's that meat. And so there's this question about, well, can we eat that or not? If you know the story, you know that Paul's response is, well, of course you can. And why can you? Well, God made it, of course, but the sacrifice of the idol did nothing, right? You know, as, as Christian monotheists, there's one true God. And so this, this pagan sacrifice that happened in this temple effectively did nothing. It's not like this food has been blessed. And he even goes so far to say as, even if these gods did exist, because you worship the one true God and you acknowledge that one true God, eating that in no way makes you a participant in the sacrifice, he says, food has nothing to do with God and your relationship with God. It, has, it cannot make you, bring you closer and it cannot make you further away from God. So eat it, all right? So Christian freedom, right? You get, you get to do it. In Judaism, you would never do something like that, right? Because there is this marker, this boundary marker between you as a Jew and the rest of the world as Gentiles, and that's one you do not cross. And this is one of the reasons Paul got in trouble at times, because he's saying those boundary markers have been eliminated. That's one of the beauty beauties of the, the gospel, right? There are lots of boundary markers that get erased and eradicated as everyone gets invited into the family. And as it plays out here, that food is perfectly fine to eat. However, he says, be mindful of the fact that not everyone gets that, okay? So you have a right to eat it. You can eat it. It's, there's no moral obligation not to. But you've got people in your midst, in your church, there'll be other pagans coming in, other Jews coming in who don't yet understand that. And when they see you eating of this food, of this meat, they are going to assume that you are defiling yourself. If you serve it at a meal, a community meal, you are asking them, they think, to defile themselves. And as a result, you are throwing in front of them a stumbling block that gets in the way of their coming to God. He says, so you shouldn't do it. All right? So you have a right to do it, but you shouldn't. Right? All is lawful, but not all things build up, right? And here's an instance of something that, it, there's nothing wrong with it. You know it, I know it, everybody, not everybody knows it, and that's the problem. There are going to be people that come in, and they're going to see you do that, or partake of that food, or you're going to say that thing, or you're going to act in that way, which we know as Christians, and in, in, in the freedom that God has given to us, is perfectly fine. It's enjoying life, but there are going to be problems in the way others perceive it. And if that's the case... We need to rethink it because ultimately it's not about you and your rights. It's about building up the community. This goes right back to this concept of righteousness. I told you righteousness and this idea of being in right relationship with other people is right under the surface of everything Paul has to say. And it comes to the surface here. Without using the term, what he's talking about is, are you living in a way that allows other people to come close to God? 
Are you acting in ways that people look at, and even though you might be right, they say, oh, I don't want anything to do with that. Or maybe they wrongly think you've sinned. You know you haven't, but it becomes a problem for them. And what Paul is saying is, when you become a Christian, in a large way, in a, in a big way, you give up your rights. And that's a hard pill to swallow. The first, the first one, hey, there are things we shouldn't do. Yeah, we, we're pretty much on board with that. But as modern Americans and a culture built on individuals and individual rights, it's a tough pill to swallow a lot of times to say, yeah, you have every right to do that, but you shouldn't. And what Paul wants us to understand is the most important thing, back to this idea of Christian unity and the community that's being built, that is paramount. That is what God's doing in this world. He's building a new family. And so all of our decisions that we make need to be geared towards that, right? And he brings back in this idea of his apocalypse, this idea that in the end, God's going to make everything all right. And when you have that frame of reference, you can think, okay, well, I can, I can give up my right. I can, and, and for us, maybe, usually it's just something that we, we want to do that we shouldn't do, or we're not going to do because it's going to get in the way of somebody else's belief or approaching God. But for them, he would, he'll turn to slaves and say, go back and be a slave. Yeah, what? You know, in the letter of Philemon, he tells Philemon, go back, enter back into slavery so that relationship can be mended and you all can be brother, brothers in Jesus. What? Right? There's some, there some really hard lessons here to be learned that we need to give up of ourselves for the, for the benefit of others, right? Do not seek your own advantage, but that of the other. This is a core message that we've, we've been sort of dancing around and sort of hinted at over months. But it comes into sharp focus in this letter to the Corinthians in which Paul says, the most important thing here, y'all, is look around, this church. My guess is a lot of us in this room, uh, there's a core of us that probably have been in this church for a long time. We've got a lot of new people that are coming in and will continue to come in, particularly to this service, right? What matters is whether or not we get to know each other. What matters is not whether or not we can come into this room and we can be a family and we can come to a time of worship. There's going to come a day, I hope, when I say, what's on our minds today? And we're here praying for a half hour because we've developed this community and this family in which we can come and bear these things to each other. That I know you and you know me and you know Daniel and Alec and Ricky and we all know each other. We've lived our life together. And so when you've got a problem, this is where you come. It's that family and that body that, that Jesus has created and that Paul is trying to get his people to come to. And if you're a community like Corinth, which says, well, I can just do whatever I want to, like you're never going to find that community. We have to be willing to sacrifice of ourselves and lay down at times our rights and our desires and what we want so that the other person can benefit, the other person can live into the person that he or she is being called to be in this community. And that's what we're after here, is to become this community that does that here and then goes out into the world and reflects that to the world and says, this is an amazing thing that God has created in this time and place, come be a part of it. And we need to be mindful in that instance that we aren't doing things and saying things, even though we, maybe we could, that get in the way of bringing in other people. That's the point. That's the point he's making, right? There are absolutely things we cannot do. There is a no-go no list, right, for Christians. As followers of God, there are things we cannot do, right? Sexual morality is on that list. 
time and time again. And, and, and the reason it's on that list so often in the, in the New Testament letters is because that was a major issue in that culture. In Rome, there was a saying that was effectively, uh, we have mistresses for fun, we have brothels for the momentary pleasure, and then we have wives to make us legitimate children. That's just the way they talked and thought. So anything, anything goes, right? And so it was in the face of that that Paul and the writers are trying to correct that because that's obviously a big deal in the church, right? Um, so there are things that we can't do, and taking your father's wife is one of those things that you shouldn't be doing, right? Um, and, and so he says, you gotta, you gotta kick him out. Like, he's, he's stepped so far over the line that he can't even be part of your family because he's poisoning your family. And so there are those issues, and there are, there are patterns and methods for dealing with those that are laid out in the Testament. Thankfully, at this point, I don't think we're dealing with any of that right now in our church. Um, but there are churches that do deal with that. And we have to be honest about that kind of stuff. But we also have to be honest with the whole purpose of all of that is the family, the community, the coming together and being one body, representing God to each other, loving each other well, and loving the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your servant, Paul, and the message that he has given to us in his letter to the Corinthians the many messages that he gives to us and instructions and the, the things that we can learn about being more your people, more rightly your people. And this morning as we hear about the reality that there are ways in which we should not behave, Lord, we just ask that you would indwell us with your spirit, your heavenly spirit, your Holy Spirit, and steer us towards the ways we ought to act and away from those that we ought not. Convict us when we step over the line, Lord, and assure us of your forgiveness and guide us to our repentance and reconciliation here in this world. And Lord, at the other times when we know that we could do something, that we have every right to it, but when exerting that right will stand in the way of other people coming to know you, Lord, we ask that you would give us the vision and the wisdom and the knowledge and the desire to set ourselves aside so that others may come to know you more. We ask that you would make us as a community a tangible living representation of your son in this world. Help us to be wise in your ways. We ask this in your son, in the name of your spirit. Amen.